Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Good afternoon to everybody who's joined us for the webinar. Uh, we're very pleased to have the opportunity to um, present an update to you of Literacy Capital's performance. Um, I'm conscious that on the webinar, we're going to have a cross-section of people ranging from those people who actually know us relatively well to also some newcomers to Literacy Capital. And so if you'll forgive me, we may just take a little bit of a step back and give an introduction um, to uh, the company. So first off, um, just to introduce myself, um, I'm Paul Pinder. I am the chair um, of Literacy Capital. We founded Literacy Capital uh, now some five years ago, uh, originally with £54 million of capital. Prior to my time with Richard Capital, I spent 25 years as one of the founders of Capita, which we led from a very small management buyout in 1987 um, through to what at the time of my retirement was a £7.5 billion market cap company. So that's probably more than enough about me, Rich. Yeah, now as Paul mentioned, um, I'm the CEO of the investment manager of Literacy Capital, um, PLC, an accountancy background similar to Paul, plus a private equity background prior to literacy. That experience was sort of seeking to invest in very similar businesses to, to the types of businesses that, that literacy are now focused on today. Um, and yeah, we thank you all for your time this afternoon. So just by way of summary, kind of four main headings. One, to give you an overview of our approach. Secondly, we'll talk in a little bit more detail about 2022. We'll talk about how we make the investments that we do. And then Rich is also going to talk through um, some of the highlights in the portfolio with a couple of case studies. I'm sure that there will be people on this call who are kind of familiar with the private equity industry as a whole, and also probably familiar with some of the um, trusts which are listed in this sector already. I think we would say that we take a very different approach to what I would call traditional private equity, and that's for a range of reasons which hopefully will come out during the course of the call. But the first thing I would say is our approach here is not to view businesses as something just to simply buy and sell, own for a short period of time and to try and make two or three times your money in two or three years. We go into our investments with a thesis that says, we're going to work with the management team and try and build a great business. Um, and in doing so, we end up, or we, we endeavor to try and take very long-term decisions, which we believe will build significant value over a period of many years. Now, Inevitably, things will happen along the way, which means that either we will get offers for the company or that the management team will want to sell the business, and therefore we will realise investments. But I think the mindset behind what we're trying to do is an important one, which is to build a great business. Um, by way of backdrop, again, many of you will be familiar with this, but we actually listed on the market 21 months ago uh, with a market cap of 96 million and a share price of 160p. Today, we've got a uh, market cap now of around 237 million. Um, and actually, if you look at the performance of this fund um, since the IPO and you exclude a few of the micro cap funds, uh, we believe we're sitting in first place out of the 350 funds that are listed. An important element, again, of what makes us different particularly from private equity, is we ourselves have got very significant skin in the game. So if you look at um, the Pinder family, if you've got two representatives on the screen, if you look at our investment team and you look at family members, um, we're invested to the tune of 50% of this fund. Um, and therefore, we have very considerable alignment with shareholders as a whole. Another significant difference is, and again, you'll be familiar with this, pretty much all private equity funds charge fees of what are called two and 20. So it's a 2% management fee, 
and 20% carried interest. Um, with our fund, we charge no carried interest at all. Uh, and again, I'm sure for the mathematicians amongst you, if you work out the impact over a long period of time of taking 20% carry, it's actually a very significant drain on returns. And that's one drain that we don't have um, within our portfolio or within our fund. Um, we will talk um, about funding portfolio in a little bit more detail shortly. So I'm not going to dwell on this other than to say that as of today, we have 16 businesses um, within the portfolio. And by and large, they are performing pretty well. I mean, if for those of you who had the time to read the announcement this morning, you ought to have seen that the, um, the, the weighted average um, growth in revenues over the period from our portfolio companies is actually very slightly in excess of 100% per annum. So that shows you that there's a very significant trading momentum within the businesses that we have been fortunate enough to back. Again, I'm sure there'll be questions on this, but the way in which we engage with our companies is pretty active. Um, we view our management team teams as partners. We look to support them in a number of different ways, um, ranging from helping them to support, supplement teams and recruit great people for them, helping with M&A, of which we've done a lot, and actually helping with what I would call just general business advice to give them confidence and to give them advice on how to take the business onto the next leg of the journey. So, you know, we talk to our portfolio companies very regularly in terms of the way we um, operate. We do have a very unusual charitable structure, um, which again is not kind of usually well known within the private equity industry. But in addition to the twin objectives of one, wanting to create significant value for our shareholders, and secondly, wanting to create significant economic value for our companies. And again, those of you amongst who have had the chance to read our announcement would have seen that we helped create a thousand new jobs um, over the recent period uh, of our results. So we've, we've contributed to creating some significant economic growth, but we also want to create some social benefit from the success that the fund has. And so we have pledged that we will donate 0.9% of net assets each year into literacy charities in the UK, of which the primary beneficiary is a charity that we set up ourselves because we wanted to have control to ensure that the money was being spent in an effective uh, manner. And thus far, um, the fund has uh, either paid or set aside for donation just shy of £6 million. So that's the kind of the backdrop to what we're trying to do. But um, Richie will now give you some of the highlights. Yeah, so just a summary of... The past year, so this is the 2022 calendar year. We closed the year at just in excess of 252 million pounds, which was an increase during the period of 51.7%. Since listing, listing occurred in June 2021. The NAV increase has been 162%. The share price increases followed, so the, the share price or return for shareholders since listing has been 147%. In terms of where that kind of you know put us in 2022, it was obviously a turbulent year um, for the kind of public markets and, and many companies um, listed on the public markets. So in terms of NAV performance, um, literacy was the fifth best performing investment trust um, in the calendar year. Um, so out of 350 to 400, you know we're obviously um, pleased with that performance, and it was also um, the best performing investment trust in the private equity space in terms of NAV performance and also share price performance. Um, so yeah, in terms of relative and, and absolute performance, we're, we're pretty pleased um, with how the past year went. Um, in terms of capital that we've deployed in 2022, just under 27 million pounds out the door in terms of investing in new platform investments. So there were two new deals that we completed in 2022, both 
majority stakes that literacy took in two cash generative profitable businesses at the point that we invested. One, a school travels business and one a home fragrance business um, called Hallsbury and uh, Ashley and Burwood, respectively. Um, we also, not all of that was invested into those new platforms, but there was also capital that we provided to existing portfolio companies um, of, of literacy. So if they were seeking to do different things, whether it was acquire other businesses, organically grow, uh, invest in their existing estates or roll out new sites or, you know, invest in new equipment in their businesses. So, or alternatively, it could have been buying more equity um, from existing shareholders of portfolio companies of ours. So there's a variety of uses of the of the capital that we um, committed to existing portfolio companies. Um, we do also currently have a good pipeline of new opportunities as well. So we're expecting the um, kind of number of you know businesses that we've got in our family to increase in the next few weeks and months. So you know that gives us good confidence as to um, where future uplifts might come from. In terms of cash proceeds, this is, I guess, probably slightly more interesting to the extent that it's that there are some aspects here that might be changing or have changed. I guess by the nature of what we do, the cash proceeds that we're likely to generate from our portfolio are likely to be low in the first couple of years or few years after we invest in a business. The businesses are, you know, reinvesting certain cash flows or, um, you know, need the cash that they're generating for other for other activities. Um, it's also unlikely in the short term that we're going to be thinking about refinancing or selling a business because, you know, the business is not scaled or matured to the extent that we would like it to. And so it wouldn't make sense to sell to sell something. And so, you know, we wouldn't expect cash proceeds or uplifts in the short term to be hugely substantial. But we are now coming to a time where, you know, obviously we started investing in 2017 and deployed a reasonable amount of capital in 2018. And we're now sort of, you know, four or five years on from many of those investments occurring. And so the cash proceeds that you can see there in the period in 2022 were just over 13 million, 13.1 million of cash proceeds. But 6.8 million of that was actually in Q4. And with the announcement that was released a couple of weeks ago with the sale of Kernel Global, um, that announcement contained the information that we will be receiving in the next 48 hours, 19 million of cash from that transaction. And so kind of purpose of that context is, you know, we've, We've stated consistently in recent fact sheets and the results that were published this morning that we're expecting the, the distributions or the cash flows from the portfolio to step up meaningfully in 2023, um, which then also links to the, the second bullet point on the capital invested um, segment of that page where you know, we're, we're pretty hopeful and confident at the moment that, that those proceeds can be reinvested into attractive opportunities. If we just take again a slight step back to kind of just explain to people that haven't heard before the types of situations and businesses that we seek to invest in. We seek to invest in typically founder-owned businesses that are generating one to five million of EBITDA. In terms of sectors, we are generally agnostic. So if you know you care to take a look at the portfolio companies that are listed on our website, there's a wide variety of um, businesses in our in our stable. That might be recruitment, healthcare, um, manufacturing, house builders, um, you know, a, a, lit- a litany of different sectors are, are investable from our perspective. Um, you know, we, we like sectors that we can understand, um, businesses that generate good margins, um, businesses that typically generate a high proportion of these profits into cash. Um, 
we are flexible and open to looking at minority and majority investments. Um, you know, we're just keen to understand what it is that the owners or managers of the businesses are seeking to achieve from the transaction. Um, so we are, you know, we're, we, we don't have hard and fast rules that certain um, investors might have. Debt is kind of an important consideration for us as well. So we tend to use relatively modest amounts of debt. Um, there's been some research released recently by, I think, Edison. Um, I think the report we've, is, is available on our, on our website, which looks at all of the leverage multiples used across private equity trusts that, you know, typically most private equity trusts do publish what their average levels of leverage are at an underlying level within portfolio companies. And literacy is by far the lowest. Um, most recently, it was 1.2 times EBITDA was the most recent net leverage um, ratio that we that we published um, for the 31st December 22. And it, we do that deliberately, really. It's, you know, to provide our businesses with the flexibility to invest. Um, they're not worried about covenants in the short term. Um, they can think longer term about what initiatives they would like to fund, and they're able to fund those initiatives to make sure that we're we're creating value over the long term. So that's that's a key difference, and also particularly where interest rates have gone in the last you know few months in the last couple of quarters, that's just made our companies um, almost relatively ambivalent to any you know basis points or a few percentage points that have um, increased on on the costs of their debts. Doesn't really touch the sides, to be honest with you. Um, I've kind of touched on this, but the types of situations we tend to see are, are owners of businesses that have not sold a business before. So we're not seeking to buy from you know private equity backed businesses where they've been through the process multiple times, and therefore you know it can be quite a difficult or an emotional or stressful period for people because often this is their life's work. Um, it, it's not a process they've gone through before, and so that brings risk, uncertainty, and, and stress from their perspective. And we're very used to dealing with that. We're, we're you know, pretty empathetic and sympathetic to the, to the situation that they're in. And the reputation we've now got, you know, we've completed, including bolt-on transactions, close to 50 or so transactions over the last five and a bit years. All of those deals we've ever done um, have been on exactly the same terms that we outlay at the start. And so we've got a reputation for you know, straightforwardness, you know, integrity, transparency, honesty, et cetera. Factors which are all important to the vendors that we deal with. Um, and often, you know, for the 60, 70, 80 plus year old um, shareholders, it's not just about the pounds and the pence um, that they're receiving at the close of a transaction. The fact that they can say to their employee base or their management teams that you've got a supportive, constructive partner, um, a closed-end fund, i.e. with time horizons much much longer and much more flexible than a private equity firm. The fact that we also have a charitable objective, all of these factors lend themselves quite well to the situations that we see, and it helps to mitigate some of the um, concerns that many of the owners might have about this period of transition that is inherent and is going to occur. Um, the, the other thing is the types of businesses we look at and the sizes of the businesses we look at are are not what typical PE wants to invest in. Uh, and as a result of that, we've got a relatively large number of opportunities and it's reasonably rare for us to look at opportunities that are significantly competitive. And so we can take time to get them, you know, to know the businesses without there being um, significant distance um, kept by an advisor running a process between us and management teams. It's much more collaborative um, and constructive. The other elements of what we do 
is around adding expertise to these businesses. They have been privately owned for a long period of time, typically. And so often there might need to be some additional experience investment in the senior team to plug some kind of gaps that might exist. And so in the sort of 20 or so platform deals that we've completed, we've added more than 40 people at a very senior level. So CFOs, chairmen, CEOs, in some cases where CEOs have been retiring or departing. Um, so the network that we've got collectively, um, other members of the board, the, the, the funds boards have got, have been really helpful to attract a caliber of, of executive that these small businesses that we invest in are, are not often able to attract by themselves. And so this tra- change of ownership is, is, is really helpful in that regard. In terms of what distinguishes us, I probably won't go through this line by line because we kind of talked about uh, some of this already, but I guess the first thing I'd say is the nature of the partnership. I think different PE houses have got different ways of operating and the degree of collaboration that they have with the management teams. But I would say in the literacy capital case, it is a genuine partnership. And that's also reflected in the investment terms that we almost invariably have. So just to give you a very simple example, if we're investing in equity and loan note and we're partnering with a management team, they get the same rank of loan note that we do. So we don't take preferential, um, we, we don't seek to have a preferential position um, in the, the cap table, et cetera. And so we kind of set the investment up on the basis um, that they, that, as I say, they view us as partners. Um, Richie has already touched on the um, approach to debt. So at the moment, our average debt to EBITDA is around 1.2 times. And again, if you look at private equity, they typically try and generate returns partly through financial engineering, where if you look at some of the listed um, uh, P funds, you may find that the debt levels are even up as far as seven, eight, nine times EBITDA. And from our perspective, we think that actually is potentially a constraint on growth, which we kind of don't want to do. Um, I think probably almost the most important here is all issue here is all around incentives. Um, so again, if you're a private equity house, Typically, the way that you as an individual within the private equity house get better off is by growing assets under management. So if you have a successful fund one, you then try and raise fund two, which will invariably be bigger, and then fund three, which will be bigger again. And it almost gets to the point where actually the management fees on the capital become almost more important than the returns that are um, generated. From our perspective, if you look at our management fee, it actually is pretty modest. Um, it's not a lot, it's barely any higher than a lot of what I would call listed investment trusts would charge. And therefore the returns that we make as managers are directly linked to the success of the companies um, that we have. Talked about leverage, so I won't go through that again. And, and we've also talked about um, our approach, but again, different PE houses have got different approaches um, to how they interact with their companies. But I would say that our interactions are um, extremely regular, extremely frequent, and extremely involved. If we go on to the next slide. Again, I won't dwell on this because we touched on it already, um, but just the backdrop um, in terms of why we're called Literacy Capital. Um, again, some of you will be aware of this, but pre-COVID, there were some 200,000 children leaving primary school each year, unable to read to a decent standard. Unfortunately, COVID has now made that situation a whole lot worse. Uh, if you can't read well at the age of 11, then your secondary education is probably not going to be well fulfilled. And also it's very hard to get um, the kind of job that many of the people would probably aspire to. And so what um, we are trying to do primarily through Bookmark is to manage interventions where we take children out of class and we give them one-on-one reading support. So usually within the term of about 24 to 36 reading sessions, we can actually get a child reading reasonably effectively. And that's what we're looking to do. And 
the reason why we set it up in the way that we have is we want to try and tackle this at scale. So again, just to give you some uh, examples, in this academic year, we're expecting to do in excess of 50,000 reading sessions. Um, so as I say, we're, we're, we're not quite at the point we can reach all 200,000 children, but we're certainly hoping to try and make a meaningful um, impact on the problem. So that's the backdrop to what we're doing um, from an ESG perspective. There is one point that's probably just worth touching on. And again, I suspect it's reasonably obvious, but if you look at the kind of investments that we do want to make uh, within literacy capital, we've kind of got a broad portfolio of things that we're very happy to do. But equally, there are some sectors that we're not happy to do. So we're avoiding areas such as gambling, debt collection, alcohol, etc. Uh, not least because we think from a kind of a reputational perspective, um, it's not really consistent with what we're trying to achieve with Bookmark. So this is the construction of the portfolio at the end of 2022. By far the largest segment is the buyout segment. So buyout we categorise as being investments into private profitable cash generative businesses growth capital now is just one single asset so that's button up box which is sixth on the table on the left hand side which is trading very nicely that has changed slightly over the last sort of 18 months or so since we listed it was it was probably 15 percent was in growth capital at the point we listed it's now a third of that and that's been a conscious decision of ours in the last couple of years to kind of move away from the growth capital investments there's always a a perception or our perception was when we started out that that's where some really um, I guess tremendous returns on capital could be made but actually we've realized that in the buyout segment we're you know it, it, it's as possible or if not more possible and also with lower risks to make very very good returns on capital um, if, if we kind of do things um, correctly and kind of sensibly and so um, yeah the, the core focus for us as we've talked about is on those buyouts of one to five million EBITDA businesses which now makes up 90 percent of the portfolio the portfolio by asset you can see on the left hand side there in that table there is a reasonable degree of concentration which has been driven by strong performance trading performance financial performance of the portfolio companies that are now large constituents of our portfolio so as Paul mentioned the the metrics that we published quarterly were strong at the end of at the end of 22. So sales um, year on year were up more than 100. In terms of organic growth, because um, some of that EBIT, some of that revenue growth has been acquired, but the organic growth is in excess of 60 percent year on year. So again, a very very strong rate of organic growth, regardless of kind of macro uh, environment. And EBITDA is up uh, nearly 60 percent year on year, and so. That that's kind of fluctuated, um, typically quite close to sales. Um, it was actually in excess of, of sales growth in recent quarters, but again, due to another wave of investment in certain portfolio companies, that the margins have come back come back slightly. Um, but we're we're pretty confident that that will that will um, you know it's a, it's a solid performance and will come through again. EBITDA margins again, we mentioned this previously, but we like businesses with strong margins. It kind of suggests that they're good quality businesses and. They're able to contend with, you know, any, any inflationary pressure um, and that customers value the service or product that, that they provide. So they've remained in excess of 20% since we've listed. So 20.6% at the end of um, 22. Valuation is, again, similar to leverage. Um, the, the valuation multiple on a weighted average basis across the portfolio of 8.4x times EBITDA. Um, again, relative to many of our peers is, is conservative. Um, and so, you know, both in terms of leverage and, and valuation, we take a, a reasonably prudent view. Um, and so, yeah, of the top five investments, um, that's 76% of, of the total portfolio. The top 10, 
Um, you can also see on this table that um, we had just over 18 million pounds worth of borrowings at the end of the calendar year. Um, we did say in the recent announcement re regarding the sale of Colonel, where we're receiving 19 million of cash, that that cash will be used to repay the RCF. And then in due course, we can obviously redraw that debt to fund new investments and you know, follow on investment into the portfolio. So that's kind of a, a summary of the portfolio. If we just move over one page, I've kind of taken a slightly deeper dive on, on two particular companies. RCI was a deal that we, we completed in the summer of 2018, so four and a half years ago now. This was an uncompetitive situation given the situation with the founders of this business and the shareholders. The original business that we invested in was called Mountain Healthcare, which provided specialist clinical staff into different settings. Two of the four founders wanted to leave completely and immediately at the point that we invested and two wanted to stay. This is a pretty unusual situation for private equity to want to invest in. They typically like backing an existing management team and to have two members and half the management team say they want to walk out at completion is, is a risk that most private equity firms are not prepared to take. And so, as you can see on the left-hand side there, part of our offering was to bring in and rebuild the management team um, that was able to replace the, the founders that wanted to depart, but also had a relevant experience and background to operate the business once it, once it was you know, scaled beyond what it was at the point that we invested. And so the business, when we did get, get involved, was turning over about 15 million pounds, had you know, 330 people. And we had to build out the, the necessary team. CEO joined initially, CFO not long afterwards. And then once they were in the door, they then um, brought in a new sales director to help on the business development side, and then also a COO for, for the group. That then meant that the business had the, I guess, the necessary infrastructure um, and necessary people to then think slightly larger and more strategically. And so you can then see the three bullets on the right-hand side. Um, you know, the sales team in terms of, you know, tendering for new contracts was, was beefed up. The headquarters was moved from a, a slightly odd location in rural Essex based in a church, which wasn't really suitable for a kind of a, you know, more sophisticated corporate entity and was moved to new offices in, in Stevenage near, near the railway station, giving good access to other parts of the country. And then also since then, the business has also acquired five other businesses, which takes the business into other areas, you know, data analytics, software, providing other clinical services and support services to people. So the business has really scaled up. So in the calendar year 22, the business turned over more than 62 million pounds um, and had grown to nearly a thousand people. So it was closed the year at 870 people. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's continuing to, to, to steadily scale organically as well as looking at further acquisitions. The, the table on the right kind of illustrates the comment that I made before regarding how the returns build over time and how we wouldn't necessarily expect returns in the early years to be transformational or huge. And so the table says we invested 3.4 million in September 18. Our gain in the first 12 months was 2.9 million. So on top of the 3.4, so that took our total return to 1.9. You can then see in each of the rows that the gain in the following year has grown as time has grown because the compound impact of the growth, the acquisitions, the organic growth has really started to feed into earnings growth, which is, is, is the input. 
for our method of valuing most of our assets, including RCI. You know, if you then look at um, RCI, which got you know a mention in our Q4 fact sheet at the end of 2022, the uplift from RCI alone in the three months was 17.8 million in um, in the final quarter of last calendar year. And so, you know, when we do get businesses that are performing very strongly, um, the rate of return that we're able to make on our capital is is very very high. Um, and you know, we are we are fortunate to have the structure that we've got where you know we're not incentivized to prematurely sell strongly performing um, and attractive businesses to private equity you know to, to realize carried interest for ourselves because there is there isn't that incentive financially for for ourselves and so you know we're quite happy to have the level of concentration that we do have in our portfolio because the concentration exists where we've got really really strong performers where RCI is now valued at 20 times what we put in, including cash that we've had back from that from that business. Grace is, is similar, where Grace is the second largest asset. Our total return for Grace is now in excess of 30 times our original investment. And so, um, yeah, this is just to illustrate the point that there is quite a sharp J curve for many of the investments. You know, once they get through the period of investment in the first 12 months. There might be revenue growth in the first 12 months, but there's often significant impacts on the cost base too, because we're having to hire relatively seasoned and expensive people for what are quite small businesses. And so the, the uplifts that tend to come through in terms of valuations and NAV for the funds tend to take a bit of time. Colonel, not a dissimilar story, invested at a similar time in the summer of 2018. This was introduced to us by a corporate finance advisor. Um, we had a reasonable minority stake in this business so about we own just over a third of it um, it was is a recruitment business the business um, that we initially invested in was called Dartmouth Partners um, the Topco um, a couple of years later was rebranded as Colonel after they'd um, in, in invested and bought um, another recruitment business called Pure the background of this transaction was that the founder of the business owned nearly 100% of the business um, he wanted to, to de-risk. He'd never kind of received significant capital from that business. And he also wanted some support from an investor that could help the, the business to scale. Um, because again, it was the first business he'd, he'd ever really run um, and kind of grown to the level that, that Dartmouth had got to. And so we, we helped him to do that. He retained a significant shareholding. So he was, he was a bigger shareholder than we were. There was also a good amount of equity that was 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 provided to other employees in the business to, to keep them incentivized and hungry to grow the business. And then we kind of through our network brought in a new chairman that had run and sold a business at a good scale that Logan could learn from. And then also brought in a new CFO for the group. Paul had previously worked with Darren. So this other recruitment firm was a business that Paul had previously chaired. And so knew Darren very, very well. Um, and we knew that Darren would be a good fit for, for Logan and we helped to bring him on board. As we said, you know, we helped Logan to complete the acquisition of Pure, which really beefed up the, the size of Colonel and, and, and the group, took it into new geographies, the US, Hong Kong, you know, other areas, other offices in Asia and, and Europe. And, you know, that business at the point of entry was employing 50 people, seven and a half million turnover. At the point we sold it, it was turning over in excess of 40 million and had approaching 300 people. And again, you can kind of see the step up in carrying value. This table is presented slightly differently to the previous table, but shows the carrying value of the asset, including the cash that we've had returned from that asset. And so 
Literacy invested 2.3 million in that business in 2018, followed by a further 600K in 2019. You can see in the right-hand column, the total return or the multiple of money um, on the right-hand side. And so the business has contributed reasonably steadily. Obviously, 2020 actually shows a step down, which was obviously due to COVID, where performance you know, did take a step back for obvious reasons. And so it just shows, that, I guess, the progression of the asset and the, the, the earnings um, of the business, which has driven the step up there in, in the carrying value. But the, the other important point is that, obviously, the sale of this, this business was um, announced a week or two ago. And the, the value of the stake that, that Literacy had in that business um, at the point of completion of the deal was £28.6 uh, million, pounds, which compared to the carrying value at the end of 2022 of 19.2 million shows that there was nearly a 49% premium to carrying value delivered for literacy as a result of that transaction. The total return was 10x for the for the deal um, in terms of compared to the you know 2.9 million that was invested just over just over 10 times money. Um, but it all showed despite that shows that you know ultimately the deal that we got completed um, delivered an uplift relative to the value that, that literacy was holding the asset at and shows prudence in the valuation approach to, to Kernel. There have been um, four other RNS announcements um, ex- kind of publishing and explaining transactions that have occurred since literacy listed. And of those four, three of the transactions have occurred at a valuation uh, in excess of 100% premium to literacy's carrying value. So more than double literacy's carrying value of the asset value. And so there are some precedents now where we can demonstrate that there is an element of prudence in the, in the valuations. And so despite the significant uplifts in 2021 and 2022, where there have been third-party transactions, the, the large majority of those have still been at premiums to the um, carrying values that have been published by literacy. I think the final slide is just a summary slide. Um, rather than bore people by going through the same points again, I think what we probably prefer to do is um, I'm, I'm, I think we open it up for questions. We can cover any of the other points that uh, people may have. Many thanks. And the first question we have is, can you please describe how Book adds value to its portfolio companies once it acquires them? Why could the original managements not have done this themselves? I kind of think there's two different questions there, actually. Why the original founders couldn't have done it themselves is a very good question. And I guess you could kind of answer it by saying, In some instances, they wouldn't want to, um, because probably the scale of ambition that we are bringing to the table is just not something they want to do. Secondly, some of the companies that we buy have almost been run as lifestyle companies. So, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. TechPoint was a business that when we bought it, it had been making 800, 900,000 of EBITDA for a few years in a row. And if you're the majority shareholder of that business, that funds a pretty decent lifestyle. Um, and there's also the question of risk in the fact that if you look at what we look to do with TechPoint reasonably quickly, which was to build out the management team, you've then got to take the view that says, am I prepared to sacrifice some of that million pounds a year that I'm getting from the company, which I can see very reliably and predictably, to go out and grow a business, um, which may actually risk damaging my income if I'm not successful. And What I'd also say is a lot of founder-led businesses, for example, that we've seen are pretty cynical about spending money on sales and marketing. So often they've had a bad experience where they've tried to recruit salespeople or build sales infrastructure. It's not worked out well for them, and therefore they decide they're not going to do it again. And so we often 
buy into businesses where we find there isn't much in the way of sales infrastructure. And again, TechPoint was a good example of that, where we've taken a view that says, actually, what these guys are doing is pretty valuable. We think we can build the customer base, but we're going to have to invest to actually do that. So it's, as I say, there's a, there's a cross-section of either not wanting to or not wanting to take the risk or not having the ambition at, the, the, at one level as to why the founders don't want to do it. And then secondly, in terms of what we do do, and again, I think we've kind of illustrated it, I would put it almost into three categories. One is structuring the business to give it the greatest opportunity for success. And so we very frequently will build out management teams. So in addition, for example, the one we've talked about around sales, it's very common for us to acquire businesses where there's either no CFO or there's a very underpowered CFO. And our kind of view of life is you get a really high quality CFO into some of our businesses. They end up paying for themselves very, very quickly in terms of the value that they can bring. And so the first bit of value that we add is to sit and look at the organization and say, how can we build out this organization to give it the greatest possible chance of scaling? The second thing that we do where I think we can demonstrate we've added some really tangible value is just work around M&A. So a lot of our portfolio companies have never done any M&A in their lives before and are probably nervous about it and also probably don't know how to go about it. And it's one of the things that we have had a little bit of experience about. And so as Richard illustrated in his piece, you know, we've actually done more bits of bolt-on M&A for our portfolio than we've actually done original portfolio investments themselves. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is kind of spending time with the management teams to help them with issues that they've got around expansion. So, you know, as a very simple example, we spent an hour and a half this morning with one of our investments where they've grown profits very, very sharply over the last two years, but now we want to double and double again. And to do that, you need a different kind of organization. You know, you need more structure, you do need more process, you need better people. And so it's talking to those managers and supporting them and actually giving them confidence that says, you know, we know we've taken this from 1 million to 7 or 8 million, but actually there's no reason why we can't take it to 16 or 20 million, but we need to do things in a slightly different way. And so, you know, again, without sounding um, too misty-eyed about it, I think we are viewed, you know, when, when we get references from the people that we work with, when we're making a new investment, we ask some of our CEOs, our current CEOs, to act as referees as to how we behave. And they're constantly indicating kind of how supportive we are and how helpful we are and how positive we are, because all of our CEOs are shareholders in the business. So they want it to be valuable as well. So I guess um, what I would say is probably our partnership approach is one which has um, given us a lot of um, strength in the market that, you know, when we're on the, on the occasions that it's not that common, but on the occasions we're competing with other investors, I think the approach that we take is a significant competitive advantage for us. Thank you very much. And on Colonel, were you a willing seller or would you have preferred to keep your stake but were outvoted? That's good. Um, yeah, I mean, on Colonel, um, I mean, we could have dug our heels in and refused to sell. I mean, there's, we couldn't have been you know, forced to do anything that we didn't want to do. But again, we, we try to be slightly more, I guess, constructive and pragmatic and listen to what management wants to do. And so in that case, we were very comfortable remaining shareholders. And actually, in the end, we've ended up retaining about a quarter of the equity or so relative to what we owned before. So we still are a shareholder in, in Kernel, albeit at a much lower level than, than previously. Um, but yeah, it was done with our consent and, you know, our support. Um, and, you know, again, where our, our fund was, um, you know, it was helpful for us to get some cash out of an investment to be able to then 
fund the the next cohort of investments. So, yeah, we were we were a happy holder, but a willing seller in the circumstances. You know, ten times our money in four and a half years, we were we were very comfortable with. Which, particularly in the you know current environment for a recruitment business, you know, I think um, you know we were we were very happy with that. And um, and and yeah, so there was no. Um, there was there was no you know guns to anyone's head or anything like that. We were very understanding of of Logan's wish to have an event because, as I mentioned, a large amount of the business was owned by employees. The employees had been there with you know a piece of paper, a share certificate for a number of years, and we were understanding that at some point he would want to help his employee base realize some value from those shares that they held. So yeah, it was it was done. It, there was no kind of forcing anyone to do anything they didn't wish to do. And we've got a question here from Charles Murphy at Singers. Go ahead, Charles. Good afternoon. Um, just thinking about your three biggest companies, TechPoint, RCI and Grace, what were their value drivers for 2022 or how should we think about them for 2023? Um, I would say they're kind of three different stories, really. Um, if you just take them in kind of order of size, RCI is, is trading very strongly in terms of organic growth and kind of organic opportunities that they're, they're picking up across the different divisions within that business. The, um, they completed an acquisition in December, um, which gives the business significantly more scale uh, and takes the business into a new activity. Um, again, it was a business that was um, founder-owned, kind of a couple of other members of management team that were also shareholders. And I guess the the pitch from RCI to them is, you know, the the team at RCI is very, very good. Um, and there are certain ways that the central team at RCI is able to help these businesses that have been set up, often by um, clinicians or people with a um, a background in running these these types of operations, but not necessarily a kind of corporate or kind of more commercial background, if that if that makes sense. And so. Um, the, the driver for RCI in the year was one acquisition plus some strong organic growth. And in terms of prospects for 2023, I think both of those engines will remain. Um, so, yeah, I would say the prospects for RCI look, look, look good. Um, Grace, I'll tackle secondly, albeit TechPoint was a stronger performance in 2022. Um, so Grace is a, is a bigger business by carrying value. Um, the, the contribution from Grace was less substantial than RCI and TechPoint um, because Grace's, Grace's contribution in 2021 was so strong. And so 2022, the business has grown strongly again, but in terms of earnings growth has grown less strongly because there's been almost a second wave of investment that's had to take place in terms of getting the central structure of the business in the right place to, to deliver the rate of growth that we would like the business to deliver in 2023. And so you know, I would hope that the contribution from Grace in 2023 um, will be as strong, if not stronger, than in 2022, because there's, um, and again, that will all be organic. Um, Grace completed no acquisition in 22. It's unlikely to complete an acquisition in 23. So the market that it operates in is has some very strong tailwinds at the moment. So, you know, that's that's the kind of situation with Grace. Tech point, um, TechPoint did complete an acquisition in the period. I think it was May, um, was the most recent acquisition of a business called Gollage based down in Somerset. Um, again, Gollage, really lovely product, really lovely business, uh, owned by Mr. Gollage. Um, so he was the founder. And so again, a very, very typical situation for literacy and also TechPoint. Um, this was their third acquisition. 
all of them have been acquired from the, the founders. And so, as, as we mentioned, there are, there are often businesses that need a bit of investment, you know, new equipment, um, new senior hires. Um, the owners have had their fingerprints all over the business and there's obviously going to be, it needs to be a period of change. And so that business contributed so strongly in 2022 because the earnings growth was so strong. Most of that earnings growth was from organic growth. Um, the electronics business or, or sec- sector was, was very strongly performing in 22. Um, components shortages all over the place. Um, customers building up their own stock and inventory because they were having problems getting hold of, of their own equipment. And so, yeah, 2022 was a very strong period with their customers um, placing high levels of orders. Um, I think there's a reasonable chance that is unlikely to repeat in 2023. But despite that, we're we're very optimistic that, you know, there's a variety of things that can be done to continue the strong performance of TechPoint. And again, you know, more broadly, not just for TechPoint, but for Literacy 2, when the market tends to get a bit softer and a bit, a bit weaker, it does tend to create more acquisition opportunities for us because vendors start to become more realistic about pricing and start to become more open to selling. When things are going really well, naturally they're they're more reluctant to sell or do something. But when things are a bit tougher, they think mm, this is a bit too hard. Maybe it is a good time for me to think about doing something else or retiring. So yeah, prospects for TechPoint, I'd say more of the same. Various acquisition opportunities that we're appraising, all of the acquisition opportunities um, you know, we have a high degree of confidence that we can improve those businesses, increase the, the amount of sales, improve margins, which they've done so far in their acquisitions. So, yeah, there's a variety of different um, factors that have, have affected their performance in the last 12 months. RCI was written up strongly in Q4. What can you tell us about that? That was just a, instead of a sort of steady pace through the year. It was a big lump. Yeah, it's just driven by a step up in earnings, if I'm honest, um, Charles. So, um, some of that earnings obviously related to the acquisition, um, but as I said, a large part also um, was was linked to the um, organic growth across the other divisions. Um, there's not been a change in in multiple or anything like that, so it's just an increase in scale and enterprise value. Um, so that's that was the cause for the for the step up in in the, in the uplift in that period. Now, again, in terms of just scale and size, obviously, as the asset gets bigger the capacity for uplift gets bigger in, in pounds terms, um, just kind of, you know, law of bigger numbers. Um, in terms of percentage terms, it's probably not out of whack with other quarters, but obviously as it was already 24 or so percent of, of the portfolio, when you do get it being uplifted by, you know, 15, 20% in a quarter, it, it does stand out because the contribution in pounds terms is, is, is very large. Thank you very much for your answers. I'm picking up three big themes you're buying largely from the management, um, the founder management. You're investing into the management and you're doing M&A. Is there any other themes that we should be thinking about when we think about how you're making your investments? Um, no, I think all of those sound accurate. Um, I, I would say the common theme, you know, we're often asked, you know, what holds, you know, there's a, a wide variety of businesses in the portfolio. The common theme is, is the situation within the management team and the shareholders. Um, There is often a need for some form of change within those businesses. And often the changes are not easy for the owners of the businesses to do themselves. And often the change that is needed is off-putting for other investors. Um, Many private equity firms are wanting to put money into more fully-fledged businesses and management teams than we're prepared to look at. And so that, I would say, is the, 
the common elements across many of our portfolio companies um, and many of the bolt-on acquisitions that those companies look at. The only, <clears throat> the only thing that I would add to your comment, Charles, and it's kind of an economic point and it supports what Richard says, is we are quite consciously buying businesses that are not perfectly formed and need a lot of work. But quid pro quo to that is we want to buy them very economically. So, you know, for example, if you look at RCI um, at the point that we bought it, it didn't really have a free form management team. It was very underinvested. You know, we had to add a lot of people quite quickly. Um, but the quid pro quo was we bought it somewhere between four and five times EBITDA. And pricing discipline, you know, if you if we do get ourselves in a competitive situation and we lose deals, the most common reason that we ever lose a deal is that we're not prepared to pay the price that somebody else is. And so, you know, that if, if, if you're very disciplined on entry and you have a good execution plan as to what you're going to do with the business once you own it, then good things tend to happen. Brilliant. One final question. What is it about your skill set that allows you to take on a sort of not a management team that needs a lot of work, whereas most private equity steers are well away from it? Um, I think, I think there's a, it's a really good question, but I think there's a combination of things. So if you look at the kind of people that private equity often use to staff up their businesses, and this is not a criticism, it's a choice they make, but they have a lot of people from an investment banking community or MBA community, or they're, you know, they're effectively financially very strong. They're a million times better with a spreadsheet than I would ever be, for example. And if you look at it from our point of view, we, you know, if you look, for example, at the board, the non-executive board of literacy capital, they're all people that have run or are running businesses in their own right. So we tend to approach investments more from an operational perspective than from a financial engineering perspective. And you know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we have very, very low levels of leverage, because a lot of us have worked in situations where you've got a high level of leverage. And you know the detrimental impact that that has on the business. And so we can probably be a little bit more practical and a little bit bit less theoretical. I also think we're really lucky from the point of view of the network. I mean, I'm no spring chicken these days. I've been around a bit. We also have got a member of a lot of other people within our contact network and non-executive network who've been around the patch. And so although, you know, Rich says we've added 40 to 50 people into our portfolio companies, in a lot of instances, we've known those people, you know, so for us to go coldly out into the recruitment market happens in a minority of cases. And so, for example, when we were rebuilding the RCI management team, we knew pretty much everybody that was going in there. We knew what we were going to get. And therefore, that kind of takes a whole load of risk away from uh, the situation, and I think in private equity, they're sometimes in, they're not in that privileged position. And regarding valuations, we've got lots of comments following the higher interest rates derating of quoted asset values that it's only a matter of time before unquoted valuations follow. Colonel clearly disproves that. Although, would you have any other comments on valuations? Well, again, I think our starting point again, if you look. Um, across the private equity market as a whole, when you look at the listed private equity trusts, across the majority of the listed private equity trusts, their valuations are still sitting in a range of somewhere between 15 times and 27 times. And I think Richie mentioned earlier on, we're sitting at something like 8.4 times. So the starting point as a benchmark for our valuations is, we think, pretty cautious. I think secondly, and again, as Rich kind of highlighted earlier on, 
if you look at all of the events that have occurred post-IPO, and actually also in, including pre-IPO before we uh, listed the business, all of those events, bar one, which was effectively where we were exiting a growth investment, which we exited at NAV. But apart from that, um, Kernel is actually the lowest um, premium to valuation at 49%, and all of the others have been in excess of 100%. So again, I give you that as an example that says, we've already demonstrated with third-party evidence that our approach to valuation is pretty cautious. And therefore, you know, even whatever you think is happening to the quoted markets today, valuations are going to have to drop an awfully long way for us to feel that the valuations we've ascribed to our business is prejudice. And I guess a slightly more informal comment that I would make, and we kind of alluded to this in the report accounts, because we now have been around a bit and because some of our investments are being viewed as quite attractive, we are getting more inbound interest regarding some of the assets within the legacy capital portfolio. And where we are getting that interest, it's fair to say that they are at a handsome premium to where we currently are valuing those businesses. Now, that in itself is not a reason to sell anything, just because somebody says, well, actually, you're valuing an X, so we'll give you one and a half or two times X. That's not a reason to sell. The reason to sell is when you think, well, actually, we're running out of steam or we're running out of ideas because you know, with a lot of those investments, although, you know, although you, people may think, well, we've done well with Kernel because we sold it at 10 times money, if you look at the top six or seven investments that we've got today, I would expect pretty much all of those investments to be sold at at least 10 times money, and in many instances, a lot more than that. So one of the other failings, I think, of the private equity industry, and again, it's because of their financial incentives, because they want to crystallise carried interest. We don't want to crystallise carry because we haven't got any carry. All we want to do is to, to build a lot of value. Um, and therefore, we've kind of got a motivation to have a longer hold period and to allow the power of compounding to really take effect. I would agree with all that and on the literacy front. In kind of a slightly more kind of macro sense, obviously listed valuations have fallen, but, but often the private valuations that businesses were held at were below the valuations ascribed to public businesses. And so, yeah, in a fall off, but the fall off in public comps has been from a higher starting point. And so I think if I speak generally about private equity, um, I think that the falls in valuations are going to be much more modest than the falls we've seen in the public markets because private assets were never valued at the same levels as certain public assets. Um, but I would agree that there's going to have to be an impact on valuations to an extent uh, in terms of the multiples at exit that you know managers and assets are able to get but that doesn't mean speaking generally about PE that doesn't mean that PE should still not be able to generate uplifts to carrying values in, in my view the, the, the uplifts may be more modest to carrying value but I still think that they will be able to generate decent returns relative to, to, to where assets are held at the moment I think the only caveat to that will be for some of the growthy and venture type uh, valuations I mean, we've already seen some of those valuations be be hammered, and that the, the reason for that is obvious. You know, discount interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, will have a massive impact on the value of those assets. And again, that's part of the reason why two years ago, you know, we we were seeing terms that people were putting forward to very early stage businesses that we were just thoroughly, you know, unwilling to to get remotely close to. And so that was again an, an additional reason why growth cap has, has wound down as a, as a percentage of our portfolio, just because, you know, as we're now seeing, that is the part of the market that is going to be hit very hard, I would suspect, in 2023. 
Thank you. And have you had any investments which haven't gone well since inception? <laughs> I'll let Paul answer that one. <laughs> yeah, we've had one um, where we made a mistake. I think Richard's letting me answer it because I think he thinks it's predominantly my mistake. And I think that's, you know, whilst we have a no-blame culture with electricity capital, I think he's absolutely right. It is my mistake. So in the middle of COVID, um, we backed an early stage business um, called Vegan Kind. And essentially, um, it was um, to, as as the name probably suggests, to effectively supply um, vegan food uh, via the internet. And it didn't work for us. It hit a lot of headwinds. And I think the two lessons that we kind of learned from it was, one is we probably misjudged the um, extent of the management experience and capability. And we probably didn't move fast enough to fix that. And secondly, we misjudged the speed with which the supermarkets would get on board um, with the whole vegan trend. And therefore, at the point we invested, the competitive environment was not too onerous, but it swiftly became quite onerous. Um, I think there's kind of a wider point to be made here as well. And it's, you know, it kind of, again, Richard introduced it earlier, is I think when we started off five years ago, we were doing both private equity deals and we were doing early stage deals. And in fairness, we've had one or two really nice successes with the early stage deals. So we're, we're still a shareholder in Butternut Box, which is a fabulous business, which is doing really well and will generate a great return for us. But we did early stage deals because we thought that they would deliver a disproportionate return relative to the amount of capital we were putting in. And I think what we've learned is we can earn asymmetric returns by doing far less risky private equity deals we don't need to do early stage deals to generate those forms of return. And also they're very time consuming. So, I mean, literacy capital only has a team of eight people in total and therefore how we allocate our time is a really important decision. And it's kind of one of the reasons why we've shied away from early stage where almost inevitably the management need a lot more time and attention invested in them. So I'm pleased to say that um, we've not made too many mistakes, but that undoubtedly was the worst one. Thank you very much indeed. We do have more questions, but we've run out of time. So thank you very much to both of you. Do you have any closing remarks? Um, only simply to say thank you to everybody for investing the time in us uh, this afternoon. I think you'll have probably gathered from the tenor of the remarks that both Richard and I have made that whilst uh, we've done reasonably well um, up to 31st December 2022, um, we view 2023 with a lot of optimism. We get a lot of KPIs and a lot of data from each of our individual portfolio companies. And so we already have good visibility on how we think 2023 is performing. Um, We have some really good teams in our portfolio companies. So we think those businesses that we do own can develop and evolve in a very successful way in the coming years. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.